Thank you, Mike. What encouragement for us to hear that we need to be praying for each other. One of the things I encourage you to do, one of the things I want to encourage our congregation to do, is to pick the church directory and use that when you have your time with the Lord and pray through that directory for people in the directory. Pray that God would make this church be a praying church for each other. Well, today we continue our sermon series on the profile of the mature believers. Yet we change gears today for the second and final time in the series. Uh, the first major section that we have addressed focused on our communion with God. The second major section that we addressed focused on our community with other believers. And today we make a final turn and begin a final section of this series and we focus on what it means to be commissioned to the world. Let me remind you of these three aspects. A maturing believer will be a person who has been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ and who is growing in their relationship to God so that their growth shows up in three different aspects. Number one, in their communion with God in the way they're part of the community of other believers, and number three, in the way they are commissioned to the world. And today we begin the final four sermons on this third aspect of what it means to be commissioned to the world. Today, the topic that we will be addressing is that maturing believers seek to be more like Jesus by having a developed burden for the lost. A developed burden for the lost. Would you open scripture to Luke chapter 15? We will be reading from verse 1 all the way to verse 32. The Gospel of Luke chapter 15, verse 1 to verse 32. As you turn your scriptures to that passage, I want to remind all of you who have been attending the uh, Bible interpretation seminars that tonight we will not be having them. We will be resuming the seminars in September. The word of the Lord from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, is the following. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? 
And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. No, longer, no long after that, the young son got together all he had, set off for a far country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pots that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring in, on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home. You kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours 
was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Amen. This was the word of the Lord for us and for our hearts. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, this morning we ask you to open our eyes to the lostness that exists around us. Let us see the world through your own eyes, Lord. Lord, we want to submit ourselves this morning to the authority of your word. We submit ourselves and our own ideas to be scrutinized by you. Speak to us, we pray, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this passage has three parables. Each could take a sermon of its own. And the, pro and the parable of the prodigal son could take a few sermons by themselves. Yet today, we will do something less usual. We will be looking at all three parables and try to see what do they teach us. Why did Jesus teach them one after another? What caused Jesus to give these parables to those who are listening to him? Now, growing up as a child, I always heard these parables as examples of the Father's love for us, as illustrations of the good news that God has for those who are lost. Now, I don't deny that we could understand these parables in this way, if we look more carefully to what gave occasion to this teaching, we will observe that Jesus told these parables as an explanation to the Pharisees and possibly as a rebuke to them. Notice verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And Jesus told them this parable. Who is the them? To whom did Jesus tell these parables? The target audience here is not the lost, the sinners, but the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Look at verse 2, the way Jesus continues. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep. Who is the one of you? It's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now what was Jesus teaching to the crowds, to the sinners, to those who were gathering around Jesus to hear him? Well, in order to understand that, we have to go back to Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 34. It, we are told that large crowds were following Jesus, and he turned to them, teaching them, that following Jesus is not simply a matter of adopting a religious system of beliefs. Following Jesus is not about following to see his miracles. Jesus was seeking out disciples, men and women who would hate even their own lives for the sake of following Christ. Look at verse 27 of chapter 14. And any one of you who does not carry his own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And then verse 33, 
in the same way any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Now, friends, this is a radical message. This is not a friendly message. And this is what Jesus taught the crowds. Yet despite this radical message, tax collectors and sinners were gathering around him to hear what he had to say. Now my friend, let me pause here for a moment. If you're here today and you don't understand who the lost are, who are the people who are considered lost, if you're here today and you are not a believer, the word for lost refers to you. And I know this might not be the most positive way to refer to yourself, but I want you to realize the way God views every person who does not commit his life and surrender his life and believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and, and Savior. Scripture calls all such people lost. And here's why. God is a perfect and holy God. He created us in His image, but we rebelled against Him and became transgressors against God. And because of His holiness and because of His justice, we have triggered God's wrath against us. But God in His mercies sent Jesus Christ to seek us out to seek all of us who are lost, to, to call us back to himself, to reconcile us back to God. And our response to his invitation is to surrender our lives, our own lives, and believe in his sacrifice for our behalf. A life without Christ is a life that deserves God's wrath. A life with Christ is a life that brings us back to God and finds us and reconciles us with Him. It is only when we trust in Christ and surrender our lives to Him that we become children of God, that we become followers. And if this morning you are here today and are not a believer in Christ, if you have not yet responded to Christ, I beg you, I encourage you, I ask you, make this day the day when you are found. This was Jesus' message. It was a radical message that unless you trust in Christ, unless you give your life fully to Christ, you cannot be a follower of Jesus. And surprisingly, sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes, when they heard this radical message, they kept coming. And Jesus welcomed them. Jesus ate with them. Jesus rejoiced when the lost were found. Yet the teachers of the law, yet the Pharisees were upset with Jesus for the why he's welcoming sinners. And Jesus responds to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and rebukes them by giving three parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son. Now today I will not be speaking about each of them in particular. In, in, independently, we will look at what all three have in common. And then we will see what implications these parables 
bring to us as individuals and as a congregation. What do these parables teach us? Why did Jesus say three parables? Why these three and not others? What are they about? Well, the first two parables at a very, at a very surface reading appear extremely, extremely similar. Both begin with a supposed scenario and a rhetorical question. Look at verse 4. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. And then the rhetorical question, does he not leave the 99 in open country and go after the lost sheep after he finds it? And then look at verse 8. Another supposed scenario. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. And then the rhetorical question, does she not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully and sh until she finds it? The assumed answer in both questions is, of course she would. Of course the man would leave the lost sheep and go out searching. This is something that all of us would do. Would you not? If you lost something, you would start searching for it. And then both parables end on a note of joy and celebration. Once the, she the shepherd finds a sheep, and once a woman finds a coin, she celebrates, she rejoices, and she invites others to join her in that celebration. Just remember last time you lost your keys and searched for them for an entire day. The joy you had when you finally found them. Or you may have gone and bought one of those remote controls to make sure next time you can do something and find them easier. But we rejoice when we find what we lose. That's the point of these parables. We search what we lose, and when we find it, we rejoice over it. Jesus connects the theme of rejoicing to what happens in heaven when lost persons are found. Verse 10, Jesus says, In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then verse 7, I tell you that in the same way, there's, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Point is, both parables are highlighting for us the natural response of searching for the lost and their natural response of rejoicing when we find what is lost. Now, verse 7 includes a puzzling detail. Who are the 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent? Before we respond to this question, let me say this. Does Scripture teach us that there are people who do not need to repent? Let's remember that these parables were given first and foremost to Pharisees and teachers of the law and remember what was their own impression of themselves. They were righteous. That they did not need to repent. So is it possible that Jesus here is giving an impression to these Pharisees? You Pharisees, you think that God rejoices over you who think you're perfect, who think you're righteous. Here's the message of the gospel. God rejoices over one person who repents than over 99 of you who think you don't need repentance. This morning, let me ask you, do you think you need repentance? 
Some of you bank on the fact that you don't need it because you are already a religious person. Some of you say, I don't need it because I'm a Baptist. Others of you think you don't need it because uh, you have not done too many bad things in your life and you think pretty well of yourself. Regardless of what your reasons are, if you're here today and think that you do not need repentance, my friend, let me remind you of the words of Scripture that teaches us that God rejoices more over a repentant sinner than over someone or a dozen or a hundred who do not need it. point of these two parables is it's natural to seek the lost. It's natural to, to rejoice when the lost are found. And now we move to the third parable, which is somewhat different. In, the sir, in, this, in, in some way, this third parable is, is different than the other two because in this parable, the father is not searching for his lost son. He's just sitting home waiting for him to come. It's like many Baptists. Just wait for the world to come to you. In some way, the, the parable of the prodigal son is, is different. And yet, in many other ways, the parable of the prodigal son is very similar to the other two parables. This parable is perhaps the most half-preached truth of the entire New Testament. Because most often we hear sermons that address only the first half of this parable, which describes the Father's love for us. But this is just half the story. The second part and the ending of this parable emphasize the appropriate reaction when the lost son returns home. Look at verse 31. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The point of the parable is not just the love of the father for the lost son who returned home, but also the love of the father for the older son who was not willing to rejoice when his younger brother came back home. In this parable, the one whom the father seeks out is not the younger son. It's the older son, who although was an insider, chose to remain outside. That's why this parable could be also called, and actually better entitled, the parable of two prodigal sons. And surprisingly, this parable ends without telling us whether the older brother was now an outsider of the party ever decided to go in. The point of the parable is a clear rebuke to the Pharisees who refuse to join the angels of heaven and the Father who rejoices when sinners return to Him. This parable is a parable of rebuke to the Pharisees. Now how is this similar to the first two parables? Well, all three parables are dealing with lostness. All three give a picture of seeking out the lost. 
And all three are dealing with the appropriate response when the lost are found. Now it's very easy for us to hear this message this morning and to examine our own lives, ourselves, against the older brother and say, surely we're not like him. We're not angry when the sinners repent. We rejoice too. Now while Jesus was indeed rebuking the Pharisees and the teachers of the law for playing out the role of the older brother, the point of these parables is not that we should not be like the older brother. The point of these parables goes deeper into seeking to become more like Jesus. After all, this is the point of our entire sermon series, the profile of a maturing believer, the profile of a believer, of a person, of a Christian who grows to become more like Jesus every day. We are not left off the hook if this morning we conclude this service and the sermon saying, thank you, Jesus, that I'm not like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. The question this morning is, are we like Jesus in his attitude, in his burden to seek the lost? And this brings us to ask ourselves, what are the implications for us? What does it mean for us to seek to be more like Jesus, more like the one who ate with sinners, more like the one who was welcoming them, the one who was teaching them, because in his ministry, we see God's own love to receive back those who repent. What does it mean to be more like this Jesus who is welcoming sinners, eating with them, and teaching them? Here are some principles for us. Do we model Jesus' intentionality to go seek the lost? I'm not asking us if we are not like the Pharisees. I'm asking us if we model Jesus' intentionality to seek the lost. Now there's a tendency today to think that being a good church member is an obstacle to seeking the lost. This tendency is a reaction against Christians who are so engaged within the local church structure that they do not have time to seek the lost. They do not have time to develop friendships with the lost. They don't have time to eat with the lost. My friends, this correction is extremely helpful. There are many Christians who have turned out to be, quote, such devoted followers of, of Christ that they don't have time for the lost. I do recognize that often, or perhaps more often than we would like to, we do church in such a way that our members don't have time to interact and de develop relationships with non-Christian friends. I do recognize that there's a danger in us today to be preoccupied only with a church structure to the exclusion of having time and energy to seek the lost. So let me suggest today that we as a congregation, as members of Park Hills Baptist Church, that we would refocus our energies, that we would examine where our energies are going into. As important as our administrative roles are, as important as, as different roles inside the building, inside the, the walls of this church 
are for the well-going of the church. And by the way, I appreciate all of you who do a super job to do that. As important as those are, if we do these things at the expense of not having time with outsiders and non-believers, we are working ourselves too much. We should be prayerfully considering to trim down programs and administrative roles so that we have time to seek the lost. But I also realize that some believers, none of us, just some believers out there, would rather prefer administrative projects and things inside the church because they're less threatening and risky than engaging non-believers. And there's some of us who would rather take 10,000 projects inside this church rather than pursue an intentional relationship with a non-believer for the sake of sharing the gospel. And if this picture describes you this morning, if this picture describes our church this morning, let us examine what kind of Jesus are we following. Are we following a Jesus who engaged the lost, who ate with them, who taught them, who welcomed them. Now notice Jesus' interaction with sinners always had a time element and a teaching element. You know what's pitiful about much of today's Christianity? Is that we neither have time for the lost, nor do we have a clear picture of the gospel we have to present to the lost. My dear friends, if we say that we follow Christ, a Christ who took time to eat with the lost, a, a Christ who took time to teach him, but we do not have time to eat with the lost and we don't know what to tell them, I am not sure I understand in what ways we are following Christ. We might not be angry against sinners, against the lost, like the older brother or like the Pharisees, but I wonder if we are like Jesus who welcomed sinners, who ate with them, who taught them, who sought them. Friends, I would like for us today as a congregation, if you are a member of this church, I would like for us as a congregation to repent of keeping ourselves too busy inside the organization of the church. And I would like to challenge you, to challenge all of us, if we are hiding ourselves behind administrative roles in order that we don't have to seek the lost, challenge ourselves to repent of this neglect. So one tendency is to see the church as an obstacle to our evangelism program. Yet, while we recognize that an unhealthy church life can lead to non-evangelism, this does not mean that we should see the church as an obstacle to evangelism. If anything, let me remind you that God designed the church to be a display of His wisdom, of His power, to form a new community based on the gospel. Ephesians 3.10, we are told that his intent was that, that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Did God design the church to be an obstacle for evangelism? Think, for instance, John 13.35. Jesus speaks to his disciples and the way they should form community and live 
in community. He says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This quality of relationships, this love can only be displayed in community as we live out in Christian relationships. Plus, the church is a place where sinners are supposed to be received and welcomed. The church is supposed to be the place where they see the different kinds of relationships that take place because of the gospel. Maturing believers living in transformed relationships are supposed to be the best display of the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that cannot see what God can do in our lives when he transforms us. The Christian community, not simply individual Christians, are supposed to be a display of God's kingdom among men. One pastor who realized the importance of the local church for evangelism, or the, the importance of a healthy local church for evangelism, after a few years of being a pastor of, of this church, they finally began to grow. So he was invited to speak at conferences and talk to other pastors about how to grow the church because we Baptists love church growth. So he was asked, what is your evangelism program? What do you do to grow the church? And the pastor responded, we use Jesus' evangelism program. What is that? Faith or evangelism explosion? No, no, no. It's a local church. It's a local church. Because friends, the, the only display a dark and lost world can see about the power of the gospel to transform our lives is not only when they look in our individual lives, it's when they look in the way we live community out. That is supposed to be the best evangelism program. So this morning, as we think about evangelism and the church, I want us to think not about the local church as being an obstacle to evangelistic program. But if, let me put it this way, if our the way we do church is an obstacle to our evangelism. It means we're not doing the biblical model of the church. God designed the church to be the means to which the gospel is moved forward. Yet oftentimes, our attention is so engaged inside what happens in these walls that we forget that God designed the church to display his gospel to the lost world and to seek the lost. What have we Christians lost from our faith? There are three things that I think this passage is teaching us about what Christians have lost from our faith. Have we lost our sense of lostness? Have we lost our sense of lostness? It doesn't bother us anymore, does it? We don't notice those around us who are lost do we? We don't make it a point to search what is lost because we lost our sense of lostness. And remember the parables, the first two parables. When you know you lost something, one of the first things you do is you start searching. Is it possible for us Christians that we have lost our sense of lostness 
And that's why we're no longer searching the lost. Is it possible that we lost our sense of the joy of heaven? If angels in heaven rejoice more over one sinner who repents than over 99 people who don't need to repent, what should that say to us? Do we rejoice over 100 church members that are safe rather than over one sinner who repents? Or let me be even more dramatic and drastic. Do we rejoice more over 100 church members who would be transferring from Bannockburn Baptist Church to Park Hills Baptist Church than over one person who would repent of their sins? What would bring this church more joy? Have we lost our sense of the joy of heaven, the joy of the angels, the joy of the Father who rejoices more over one person who repents? How might we change our prayer life if we would restore that joy of heaven in our own lives? Have we lost our sense of lostness? Have we lost our sense of joy? And number three, uh, the first sense of losing is actually not from these parables. It's from another parable in chapter 16. I cho we chose not to read that parable, but it's so present there. Have we lost our sense of urgency? This sense comes from the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. We're told in this par parable that the rich man ended up developing a burden for his lost brothers. And he's pleading with Abraham to do something about his lost brothers. But it's too late. Yes, it is possible to develop a sense of urgency for the lost or a sense of burden for the lost, yet for that burden to be too late. My dear friends, have we lost our sense of urgency? So what do we need to recover? What do we Christians need to recover? What do we Baptists need to recover? What do we members of Park Hills Baptist Church need to recover? In order to recover the burden for the lost. Four things. Remember the life and ministry of Jesus. Remember who is it that you're following. You're following a Jesus who is who has given time to eat with the lost, who has given time to welcome the lost, who has given time to teach the lost. Are you growing in becoming more like this Jesus? Are you maturing? Number two, pray that God would restore in us the sense of lostness, the sense of heaven's joy, and the sense of urgency. Ask God to fill your heart with these senses. Number three, adjust your life so that you can engage the lostness around you. Some of you might be struggling with just knowing what to say when the opportunity arises. You might be good about engaging with the lost, but you're terribly shy and afraid and unsure of what to say when those opportunities arise. Well, I encourage you, in the fall, we will be having a few sessions, a few seminars on, on explaining Christianity, on how you could speak to non-believers or to the lost about the faith that you yourself proclaim to have. Next week, I'll be also talking about the proclamation of the gospel, so I encourage you to be back next week. But if you're struggling with this aspect, 
make an adjustment in your life to read, to train yourself, to equip yourself, that you become more comfortable sharing with people that which you believe. Some of you might be struggling with time commitments or with church commitments. And you need to say no. And I, as your pastor, will gladly do that if you promise me that you'll do it for the sake of having more time to engage the lost. Some of us need to make adjustments in our lives so that we can engage the lostness around us. Number four, ask someone to keep you accountable in how you engage the lost. Developing relationships uh, with other people and asking others to keep you accountable how you engage the lost is an experience that grows in us only in community. As we do it together as a church body, as we do it together as small groups, ask someone to keep you accountable in how you're seeking to engage the lost. Remember who you're following. Pray that God would restore to us the senses of lostness, of seventh joy, senses of urgency. Adjust your life so you can engage lostness and ask someone to keep you accountable. Let us pray. Father, we come humbly before you, being aware of the inclinations of our own hearts, to be thankful that we are not like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Forgive us, Father, for this thankfulness. Your word challenges us to compare ourselves with your Son, our Savior, who came to seek and to save what is lost. Father, help us become more like Jesus every day. Father, we pray that you restore in us a burden for the lost so that we would live our lives always seeking opportunities to engage the lost around us. Lord, enable us to adjust our lives so that we can do that. And Father, enable us to do this developing of burden for the lost, not only as individuals, but as a community, as a church body. Father, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. We continue to have a few moments of silence. I encourage you to respond to the Lord to what He has spoken to your heart this morning.
you are a guest and a visitor and would like to know more about this congregation, I encourage you to talk to us at the end of the service. And let's bow our heads now and pray to the Father. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip us with every good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.